Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. We follow the status and the progression of the Catechism, and we close up our study of the law of God. And if we remember in the law of God, it certainly uh, cuts deeper than merely a few outward acts or a few outward desires that we may want to do. Uh, we saw the law of God really cuts to the heart. Uh, we notice there's a positive and a negative side to the commandments. Uh, not to say there's an upside and a downside to the law of God, uh, but what that means, there's a positive of what we are called to do, so something we consciously desire to do from the heart, and the negative is what we are not to do in, in terms of the law of God. And so the law of God certainly sets those boundaries uh, and those guidelines for the Christian life, or as our catechism says, our guide for grateful living. Well, as we move from the law of God, uh, we certainly note there, as we've heard from the law of God, that we are redeemed in Christ. We are his people. He has secured us. He's made us alive. He's bestowed his mercy upon us. He's given us new birth. He's regenerated us. These are all the blessings that, that we hear. And so we do the law of God out of gratitude. But the Catechism wants us to understand that the Christian life is not just doing, it's not just thankfulness. Uh, it's understanding that there truly is a relationship, a communion that we have with our Lord. And so this is a way in which we pursue Him, and we pursue Him through prayer. And it's one of those things that when we truly consider uh, who we are as the Lord's creatures, who have sinned against Him, who have rebelled against Him, who told him we don't want him uh, to rule over us as we see with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We see that the Lord still comes to us as lowly creatures. And so how does prayer then remind us of who God is and his exalted place as a great redeemer and remind us as mere lowly creatures uh, who receive redemption by his benevolent mercy? How, how does this fit together? Well, as we look at this, I'd like to do things a little different where we consider the text of the Catechism first and what it's <clears throat> teaching us as it walks through uh, these, the teaching of prayer. And secondly, what James is saying or confirming. So I'd like to divide it in the Catechism's uh, assertion and James's confirmation. And so let's begin with the Catechism's assertion. The Catechism uses a strong language in terms of prayer that God gives his spirit to those who ask. Now, when, when we hear this, we think of the canons of Dort and, and the reminder that the Lord doesn't take a survey as to who receives regeneration and who doesn't, right? I mean, we believe that God has called his people before the foundation of the world. God's not taking a survey. We, we don't really participate in that. But yet the catechism, if we take this out of context and we're not careful, we, we could take this to mean that, that it's up to us to come and to receive Christ in our power. 
But that's not really what the catechism is teaching us. When we look at the citations of what the catechism is citing in Scripture, you have Psalm 50, verse 15, where he says, I call on your name in the day of trouble, or call on my name in the day of trouble, I will deliver you. In other words, is that call like we heard this morning, the assurance that the Lord is a shield and defender. It's our pursuit of God, our reaching out to God. Psalm 116, 12 through 19. It's the assurance of, of piety. It's tied to the performing of our vows in terms of our prayers. So our, our prayers coming into the presence of God, bringing our requests to him, and it's our conscious pursuit of God. And so when, when we hear this, we have the Apostle Paul saying to the church in Thessalonica to pray without ceasing is also cited. So that's a reminder that continually through this age, it's not a one-time prayer that, that we pray to God, but this is a, a continual activity in our Christian life. And so the catechism's not teaching us that this is sort of our, our casting a vote uh, for God, but it's, it's really a consciousness of our pursuit of the Lord and, and his rule and provision in our lives, of recognizing we are the, the citizens who have come into this kingdom He's the king. Uh, we're those who were enslaved, and he's the redeemer. And so it's, it's calling us to recognize who we are. We're coming before the great God of heaven in humility. We have then the catechism calling to our attention um, from Matthew 7 and Luke 11. Once again, the pursuit of the kingdom of God, pursuing his righteousness and prayer is certainly the start of this, isn't it? That we're asking the Lord to transform our heart and to open us up. I mean, we can go through the Psalms and you can find in the Psalms things like, Search my heart, uh, Psalm 119 that we sang from. And, and you put that into context. What are we praying? Keep me on the path of righteousness. And so it's that continual consciousness of wanting the Lord uh, to keep us on task and to keep us with the right goals and orientation through this age. Going on then, the catechism says, how do we pray? Very important question, isn't it? Uh, because we can have a lot of different theories of prayer and a lot of different theories of calling out to different deities. And so the catechism wants us to understand that we're not going to be distracted by dead saints. We're not going to be distracted by other things. We want to pray to the one true God, right? This is very important. God isn't just one option. This is what we heard about from Hosea this morning. We can so easily deceive ourselves and say, well, I got God, but I got these other things I trust in, so I'll sort of do this last-minute prayer to, to God, and then I'll sort of trust in these other things. Well, the catechism is calling to our attention that prayer is our consciousness to have this singular focus on the one true God. And so we want to call unto him as the only God. Secondly, we also want to understand who we are and who God is. And so it's important in prayer. Catechism reminds us that we know our sin and misery, right? So part of our prayer is confessing our sins. Uh, this is a reminder we're works in progress. We struggle uh, to have our affections tuned into God perfectly as we heard from the law of God. But nevertheless, prayer is our continual calling out to God, wanting to be 
uh, faithful royal uh, subjects before his throne, right? This is living life out of gratitude. You don't take these sins away from me. Not only am I confident of Christ's definitive work, but also work within me. Uh, that, that I wouldn't find these sins uh, gratifying or, or think that there's any joy in these sins and understanding they truly are contrary to the Lord. And so we need to know our misery. We need to know that we are a struggling people. God's a gracious God. He's sovereign. He's almighty. And he's a God of new life. But we also recognize that we uh, rest in an unshakable foundation. Because notice what the catechism wants us to remember in the midst of this. Because of Christ. And so when people look at the Reformed faith, they can say, well, the Reformed faith doesn't really believe in, in a priest. Uh, the Reformed faith doesn't have priests like you have with Rome or maybe in other traditions. But the catechism is saying we actually do believe in a priest. The one true priest, Jesus Christ. And this is what the catechism is calling to our attention, that we're coming before the one true priest, as we heard in our study of Hebrews, the great Melchizedekian priest, uh, the one who is seated in heaven eternally, the one through whom we bring our requests, that he hears our requests. Uh, we have Paul assuring us that even the Spirit intercedes on our behalf, right? So it's not that God is in heaven, we're on earth kind of muddling our way as a bunch of earthlings trying to, to find heaven. God is there. God is walking with us, as we heard even with Israel in her dark time, that God did not turn his back on his people, even when his people turned their back on him. And again, this isn't an invitation to test the boundaries of grace. Uh, God, as we've learned from the canons of Dort, can hand us over to our sin, can give us what we think we want to show us we really don't want it. And so prayer then is that retuning and reorienting who we are, requesting and wanting God uh, to work out his will. And so the catechism then asks us, so what can we ask of God, right? So often we think that in terms of this life, God's only concerned about spiritual blessings, right? We, we think that in terms of our redemption, it's just forgiveness, it's being communion with Christ, and so it's spiritual and, and the physical, well, that's all up to me. Well, the catechism wants us to do away with any temptation of this thinking. It's everything we need spiritually and physically, right? And so it's understanding that God and his providence does in fact provide for us. And so we ask him for that. We also ask him for our spiritual needs and the assurance that the Lord is gracious and merciful. And so when, when we look at this and we sort of summarize what the catechism's teaching us, we can say, well, why is this so important? This is just merely a New Testament blessing. And I think this is where it's important to consider some of the stories in the Old Testament and looking at uh, some of the things that are cited in the Catechism. We think of Daniel. Daniel 9, 17 through 18 is cited. Remember when we went through Daniel in our study that uh, Daniel's trying to figure out what, what do we make of this exile? Here we are in a foreign land. I want to go back to the promised land. Uh, it seems that we're at the end of the time of what Jeremiah has prophesied. Lord, show me what's going on. And, and we saw in Daniel that, that there certainly is a wisdom in saying that ignorance is bliss. 
Uh, because once the Lord pulls back the curtain and Daniel sees more of what's going on in the world in terms of the great cosmic battle between God and Satan, uh, you, you understand the, the terror and all the things that God's dealing with, which is uh, beyond our comprehension and many times beyond um, our consciousness, where I think many times we, we may minimize that, we may uh, downplay it and not understand how severe it is. But Daniel opened up that, yes, with his prayer, the Lord answered it, heard his prayer, uh, showed him the reality of what's going on in the bigger plan. But we also think in terms of Abraham. And this is a, another passage that I find intriguing, to say the least. Not, not that I doubt it, not that I question it. It's not intriguing in that sense. It's just, it's intriguing that, that God is God, and yet he cares about the creature, right? I mean, that's, that's something, why, why does God care? He's so magnificent, he's so holy. Uh, why does he care? But you find in, in Genesis 18, truly this, this condescension of God, that the benevolence, the kindness, the mercy of God, that, that he doesn't have to show. He doesn't know this. But in Genesis 18, when, when he meets with Abraham, and uh, there you have the angel of the Lord, Christ pre-incarnate, meeting with Abraham and talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's a staggering passage, isn't it? Because the Lord says he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, well, what if there's 50 righteous? And the Lord hears that and says, if there's 50 righteous, Abraham, I, I won't destroy it. And again, why does the Lord even consider it? I mean, he's God. Abraham's a, a mere earthling, a mere mortal, a, a mere creature who needs redemption. But yet, you, you see the beauty of prayer. And, and the most staggering thing in, in the passage is Abraham goes all the way down to 10 righteous people. And, and it's staggering because on the one hand, how can you have a place where there's not even 10 righteous people? I mean, what an immoral place, uh, for one thing. But another thing is that the Lord hears his prayer and says to Abraham, for the account of 10, I, I will certainly withhold my wrath if there's 10 righteous. And so when, when you look at Genesis 18, if somebody says, well, prayer is just a New Testament phenomenon, you say, well, Genesis 18, it's a rather remarkable thing in terms of how our prayer works. We don't fully comprehend it. We don't fully understand it. Uh, I mean, why would God want to listen to us? But yet you see uh, the magnificence of, of his gracious redemption, that he certainly not only hears the prayer of Abraham, but he acts on it by his promise. And so I, I call that to your attention because I think when we look at the overview, what the catechism's laying out, what it desires to teach us, it's important to have that in our mind. Because we turn to James. When we look at James and his affirmation, there's a book, as I've mentioned, as we're reading through it, that it's the New Testament Proverbs. Uh, basically, this is wisdom literature. Uh, wisdom, we, we have to understand the context of Scripture, is not necessarily knowledge. Uh, so wisdom isn't just learning something. Uh, wisdom, we can say, is the application of knowledge. Um, and maybe that's not even the most helpful way to, to say it because it's not really just about knowledge about God or, or knowledge of our theology. Now, now that's important. Uh, we need to know our doctrine. We need to know our God. We, we need to know Christ. We need to know the doctrine of what Scripture says. So I'm not 
minimizing doctrine and saying we don't know doctrine. That's, that's not true. We know doctrine. We're called to know doctrine. But knowledge in terms of, of wisdom literature is truly knowing something. And probably one of the best examples is in the book of Job. Uh, commentators still wonder why, why did Job suffer? What, what, what really brought that about? And, you know, we can make deductions in the text, but whatever the case... What we do know from the book of Job, without getting into all those details, Job knows the Lord at the beginning. No doubt, he knows the Lord. He knows the way of God. Uh, we hear the speeches throughout the book, but at the end of the book, when he's brought to his knees and he's truly putting on sackcloth, then he truly knows the Lord. In other words, as he's humbled, he understands the ways of God are beyond his comprehension. There is something so uh, majestic about God that, that Job can't put God in a box. Where if you read the book of Job, that's really what the counselors do and Job tries to do. That they, they try and make this, this world a series of, of set axioms and, and ways that you do X, you receive Y, and, and God is that predictable. And the Lord's saying, listen, I, I'm God. I'm the ruler of the universe. Either you fall on your knees and you affirm it and you embrace it and, and you come to truly see that or you don't. Now again, we, we know the regenerating work of God and, and all of that. But the reality in terms of our consciousness, this is what Job learns. He truly knows the Lord. And so that's what James is communicating to us, that desire that we truly know the Lord. Not just about the Lord, but truly know the Lord. And this is important because when we think about who James is, most likely he's one who has come to faith. Uh, we say that he's probably the brother of Christ. We, we say that the very high degree of probability for these reasons. Uh, we have in Mark 6 verse 3, uh, we have that there's people who doubt Christ. And they doubt Christ because they say even his brothers do not believe him. So we find that Christ has family, not just the adopted uh, co-heirs, but that Christ's family literally has brothers and sisters. We go on and we find in John 7 verses 3 through 5, there's an accusation against Christ that even his own brothers do not believe him. So we know Christ had brothers uh, who were certainly tied to him, grew up with him. And then we have the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1 where he gives this identification of James, where Paul recounts that he's the one who saw James, and he identifies him as the Lord's brother. And so the implication of this is that James is one who grew up with Christ, didn't believe Christ was a Messiah, didn't come to faith, uh, the Lord didn't work uh, for whatever reason at a particular time when, when Christ was in the home. And so James is one who doesn't believe him, as we hear from the other gospel accounts. Even his own brothers do not believe him, which means Christ is a, a bit of a, an anomaly. And so James is one who doesn't believe he's really Christ. We have in Acts 15 that he becomes very essential in terms of uh, the Jerusalem council in, in making his speech. Now we have Christ appearing to James as it's recounted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 7. He appeared to James and then the others. So the implication is that this is a private meeting and it's probably in this meeting 
uh, that the Lord was pleased to work and that James came to faith. And I say that because when Christ was on the cross, we have a record in John 19, verse 26 and 27, where Jesus turns to his mother and he turns to John, the favorite apostle, and he says, behold your mother, behold your son. So the implication is that Mary, his mother, believes that Jesus truly is the Messiah. Most likely, Joseph has passed away at this time. She's a widow. And when Jesus identifies uh, John as her new son, and, and he charges him to take care of his mother, that there you have this role, that there's this adoption that's going on. So the implication is James doesn't believe that Christ is a Messiah, is out of the picture and not there. So between the crucifixion, John 19, and the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, in the private meeting, somehow James has come to faith. We don't read of his conversion, but the implication is that in the private meeting between James and Christ, the Lord is pleased to work in that moment. And so it's important when you understand the backdrop. James does not believe at one point of his life that Christ is a Messiah, even though he watched Christ grow up. And yet, so when James writes this, there's a certain richness when you understand the backdrop of this story. But as James writes, what does he tell us? Well, the, the exhortation here is he's a servant of God, writes to the 12 tribes in a dispersion in verse 1. So this is a reminder of, of where we are in terms of covenant history. We've covered this in Hebrews. We talked about this a little bit this morning. We need to see ourselves in the wilderness. A time of testing, a time where we wait upon the Lord and his provision. We see ourselves between an exodus and between a place of rest. And so when we're in a dispersion, James does this, Peter does this, uh, Hebrews does, uh, does this in Hebrews 3 to 4. It's that reminder that we're sojourning. We're, we're finding ourselves in a place of an exodus where we would see the resurrection of Christ as being this true redemptive event, of this exodus event, uh, calling us, securing us, grounding us, and then seeing ourselves as moving through this age to the ultimate rest of Canaan. So when James writes this, we're, we're in a place of temptation. We're in a place of testing. We're in a place of distraction. And so James himself can, can understand, you know, what, what's there. I saw, basically, he could say, I saw Christ uh, grow up. I witnessed it. I didn't believe him until I saw the resurrected Christ. And the Lord was pleased to work uh, through that moment for whatever reason in that timing. And so we, we can ask a question then when we look at James, we can say, well then, what do we do with this? How, how do we go through this life in the confidence that, that, that the Lord's really with us and, and know um, that we're communing with him? Well, James does tell us and give us some encouragement. Some people, if you're familiar with church history, Luther was one who doubted James being part of the canon saw James as contradicting Paul until you really dig down and, and see who James is. He sees himself remarkably as a servant of Jesus Christ. 
Think about that statement. He, he's a brother of Jesus Christ. He, he's in the family line. If there's anyone that can pull rank in terms of, of Christian significance in family lines, it's James. But he doesn't. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. So he sees himself in this place. He reminds us, 1 verse 7, that we are those who will receive from the Lord. Um, we are those who understand that we are to have confidence in Christ. So it's the reverse. If we're going to be tossed around, we shouldn't be confident we will receive anything. The reverse side is if we have confidence in the Lord, we can be confident we will receive something. It goes on. Hold to the faith in Christ. Uh, be with those who truly believe in Christ. And you can go through these references where he talks about the exaltation of Christ and the need to truly have faith in Christ. So you have to understand for James, his perspective is really looking at ourselves from this world, starting in the dust of the wilderness and calling us to look through this age to the ultimate exaltation of Christ and our ultimate uh, resurrection and glorification and where we're going. So for James, he's kind of putting his arm around us saying, here's your wilderness sojourn. You're oriented in your Lord Jesus Christ, but listen, you're going to have trials. You're going to have temptations. Uh, this life is going to be riddled with the dust of the wilderness. And so James is, is sort of giving us uh, the boot camp of the Christian life, if you will, that, that it's not necessarily going to be so easy. The Apostle Paul, as some theologians speculate, uh, when you think about his conversion, seeing the exalted, the exalted Christ, where does Paul always place us? He always places us in heaven, seated with Christ Jesus, calling to our attention that Christ has overcome. So for Paul, the great event is Christ's resurrection, the outpouring of the Spirit, being united to our Savior and oriented in terms of that reality. So you have to understand in terms of their conversion experience, how the Lord has been pleased to work, that you can understand a different view. And so just because there's a different view in terms of the wilderness sojourn, Paul, we start with glorification. James, we start in the dust of the wilderness. We're going through these trials and temptations. They're not contradicting each other. It's a different viewpoint and a different way of exhorting us. So once we understand that, we can say, okay, we understand verses 2 through 4. He talks about testing. There's steadfastness in the midst of testing. Uh, we're we're going to have hardship. So we can say, well, if this wilderness time is a time of hardship and, and testing, how do I know I'm going to persevere? I mean, here's a man who watched Jesus Christ grow up and, and, and he wasn't persuaded that Christ was a Christ. So how do I know that I'm going to persevere? How do I know that my God really is walking with me in the midst of this wilderness time when I'm tasting temptation, when I'm tasting uh, persecution or testing or whatever it may be? How do I know? Well, notice he tells us what the problem is. He tells us the problem is wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, we may say, well, it's not wisdom, and James is saying, but, but it is. We have to have the wisdom, and truly in the biblical sense of what wisdom is, that we truly know who our God is, that he's bigger than all of life's circumstances, that he's the one who truly wants to commune with us, the God who has redeemed, 
And so when we have these doubts, James is saying what we're really struggling with is wisdom. We're not seeing through our circumstances clearly understanding who our God is. We're not seeing him as a shield and defender. We're not seeing the the beauty of what he has accomplished and, and the wisdom of living out his life. In fact, if we look at wisdom in terms of scripture, what do we have? Well, we think of Proverbs, Proverbs 1 verse 7. Wisdom is a fear of the Lord, right? So it's the understanding of who God is, a reverence before the true God. Proverbs 2 verse 2, our ear is attentive to wisdom. This is where we find our, our life and our true understanding. And you can go through Proverbs and find reference after reference after reference that wisdom is truly knowing the Lord. So James is picking up with Proverbs. And so he's saying our fundamental problem is, is wisdom. Say, okay, we make that concession. I understand my, my problem in the midst of doubt is I lack wisdom. So now what? Well, he says, let him ask God. I mean, it's one of those things where it's as obvious as your nose on your face, and yet, that's not where you first go. And James is saying, why don't you ask God? Bring your doubts before your Lord. Bring your struggles before your Lord. Say, Lord, I'm in the midst of this turmoil. I, I, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to make of this. Open my eyes. Give me clarity right? These are the sorts of things we, we say. I'm going through a test. I don't understand. Is this discipline? Is this, I mean, what, what's going on? Is this just uh, refining me? What, what are you doing here? James is saying, ask God. And we say, okay, well then what's, what's, the, what's the assurance of this? Well, the assurance is that as we ask, we know that the Lord is the one who's going to give generously. So this is more than, than what we even bargained for. So as James says this, he's setting out the solution. The solution is come to God, ask for wisdom, ask for a perspective. But he goes on to say that we have to ask in true faith, without doubting. So this is basically what we've heard from Hebrews 11. Uh, this is what we've heard in the Heidelberg Catechism, the good work, that it starts by faith done according to the law of God, not according to the laws of men, right? 91 in the Catechism. It's that reminder of what Hebrews reminds us, that you walk by faith with the orientation toward heaven. So, so we're having this confidence, much like Abram saying amen to the promises of God in Genesis 15:6. Yes, the Lord will do this. And, and we say, okay, so we understand we have to have confidence in the Lord. He, he will uh, answer our prayers. He will give us wisdom. He will give us a new perspective. But he tells us also what we're tempted to do in the midst of trial. To doubt. And to doubt whether God can really deliver. Now when he says this, we, we have it where he's a double-minded man. Another way of bringing this into English is a double-souled man, which which really brings out the absurdity of this, that you, you have two souls, like, like you're two different persons in, in, within yourself. And so on the one hand, you're, you're trying to follow the Lord, but on the other hand, you're trying to follow something else. And James is saying that's, that's not going to give you clarity. Uh, that's something that, that's a contradiction when, when you say this out loud. How, how can a man be a double-souled man? But he's saying that's what the individual is like. Now, if that doesn't drive it home uh, 
to, to a place where we really understand the significance of this, he talks about what it's like uh, to basically be like the water in the sea, uh, where it's a wave where the wind comes and it goes one direction, goes another direction. We may not see the rhyme or reason as to what's going on. And so James is saying, listen, if this is your perspective and your confidence, you have no direction. And he says then again, there's a the call for us to see that we're unstable in all our ways. So the point of this is exactly what the catechism is saying, isn't it? Uh, in some, that it's having this perspective that our Lord is faithful. He's not leave us to wander. He's not abandon us. He's not a God who's distant. He's literally a prayer away. And as we call out to him, and as we ask him for wisdom, he is a God who gives us wisdom, works within us, conforms us to his will, grants us what we stand in need of to sojourn uh, faithfully under the sun out of gratitude. And so in return to the question then, how does prayer ultimately testify that God is exalted and we're the lowly creature? Well, it testifies to the reality that we turn to the Lord as his redeemed. And it's important to understand that because it is God who has redeemed. It is God who has given us new life. We're not worthy of this life. We're not worthy to be called new creatures in Christ Jesus. He's the one who has given this to us. And so as we understand that perspective and we're crying out to God, we're seeing him as the only redeemer. That's how we need to have this perspective. He is the only redeemer. It's not God, some other God. It's not God, some other option. There is only one way to truly have life, and that is in our Lord Jesus Christ, to be focused on that redemption. Prayer, then, is that reminder of what James is saying. In the midst of testing, in the midst of trial, we can see this in Job. We don't always have the clearest perspective, do we? We're not ones that are always having that singular focus on the Lord. And what does James do? Does he tell us to get everything together and then turn to the Lord? No, he says we come to the Lord humbly. We come to him expecting him to answer our prayers. And, and we do this in the confidence because we want to discern his will and what is right and what is honorable to him. And so we, we can't see prayer then as a way in which we twist the hand of God or, or we try and make God do what we want. But we need to see ourselves like we see with Abraham or with Isaiah or the angels of heaven as members of the heavenly assembly. Those who are called to pursue God and to pursue him out of gratitude. And why? Why do we do this? Because it is God who has first pursued us. It is God who has first given us life. It is God who has called us to him. It is God who has redeemed and recreated us. And so when we call upon the Lord, we need to understand how personal our redemption is. It's not arbitrary. It's not something where God sort of just has some quota of individuals to save. But God will bring his people that he has called before the foundation of the world to enter into his presence. 
And so when we understand what James is saying, this is merely our consciousness, our understanding. We are those who have been redeemed, made alive in Christ, and we're asking God to continually conform us in this orientation as his redeemed people. Let us then truly desire to know our God, and let us truly desire to live by his wisdom, but doing it out of gratitude, understanding we are those who are not worthy but have been made worthy in Christ Jesus. And let that be our source of hope as we sojourn under the sun. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshipping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.